Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today we welcome the incredible Harry Turner to the show. Harry is a former... British soldier, explorer, wildlife conservationist, and uh, the star of a recent documentary, Wildcat, uh, which is on Amazon Prime. And uh, Harry, it's great to have you on here. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. And uh, I know before we hit record here, I was telling you, I'm I'm a lover of documentaries, especially after the pandemic, where I just there's only so many TV shows and movies you can watch. And I started going down this rabbit hole of watching documentaries from health and fitness to uh, wildlife conservation, some of which are Ivory Game, uh, Sea of Shadows, my friends at Sea Shepherd uh, put out some awesome stuff there. But when I came across yours, all I saw was going through Amazon Prime was a picture of this kid staring directly into the eyes of a, uh, a baby oscillate. And I'm kind of like, 10 p.m. at night, I'm going to watch it. And for the next two or so hours, man, I was blown away, humbled. I went from a range of sadness to anger to happiness. And I was like, I got to reach out to Harry because I'm blown away by this. It's someone that is able to put themselves out there like this. Um, just incredibly touching, man. Yeah, thank you. You know, it's an extremely vulnerable film for myself. Um, I feel like, you know, I needed to put myself out there. All I've ever wanted to really do um, is try and help anything around me, whether that be people who are struggling or whether that be the smallest of ocelots that kind of needs a mother in this situation. And um, yeah, this documentary definitely touches on some very uh, emotional and, and uh, upsetting moments, but it also can kind of bring you back to like parts of your life. I I've spoken to so many people that have kind of been like, I went into this film not knowing, but then I saw a bit of myself in it. And that can be from uh, you know, trauma, PTSD, war, that can be from loving animals, from having a relationship with a younger sibling, you know, family situations, you know, it's, there's so many paths that you can walk, you know, down via this film. And I, I do want to touch about that. You kind of bring up something I kind of want to lead into. There's obviously there's a stigma, when it, especially when it comes to males, to ask for help, whether it's mental health, depression, or like, even if, you, man, I, I'm lost, I need directions. We don't ask for help. But for you to put yourselves out there like this and make yourself so almost like, like you're just, you just, you put yourself out there as this wounded man and you come out of it. At least I, as the viewer hearing the story, it's like you became so much bigger than what you are. You, the fact you're able to put this out there and talk to other people who are going through this stuff and to crack this stigma that is attached to asking for help. Anyone that's going through issues, whether it's mental or PTSD, you watch this film and it's like, well, if Harry can do it, why can't I? Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of like that light at the end of the tunnel that kind of like it inspires you to go on and do what you want to do. You know, like when I went to the jungle, I was a broken man. You know, I say man. If you watch it, I was a boy. I was <laughs> yeah. a kid. I was in Afghanistan when I was 18 years old. Um, within my first five days, I saw someone uh, get shot in the head. And when you're 18 years old and, and you have that life check, really hard life check, you you 
it takes you back. You have to think, you know, you have to be like, what am I actually grateful for? And so after the Operic 16, after my tour, I was so lost, you know, I was, I went to the jungle to kill myself. That's why I went to the jungle. I, w I wanted to get lost. I didn't want my young brother to find his older brother dead. You know, like that's unfair. Even though I was in such a, a bad place, I could still kind of, I was still thinking of the consequences of my suicide. And when I went to the jungle, I, I didn't want to come back. But something about the jungle saved me. It took me about 14 days to realize, right, Harry, like you should be happy. And you know, I was sat on the front of the boat and, the sun had got was going down and the bats were changing with the birds. And I was just like, whoa, it was like this epiphany. You know, I was like, this is incredible. And from that point on, I wanted to help. I wanted to, if this jungle can save me, I want to save it. And that came to me in the form of uh, orphaned ocelot. And I knew at that point, this was my purpose. This is why I struggled. This is why I'd gone through all of these things. This is why I was put in this position right now. So I could be this mother to this orphaned ocelot and I could do the best that I possibly could, even though I had no education or university degree in this area, it felt right. And I was the right, right person at the right time, you know, like it, it just, it, it fell in my lap. You, when you transfer, you basically were discharged out of the army for, I guess, recurrent depression. But with that, that process that happens, they let you know this is what's happening. Was there anything like, were you, as you look back, are you kind of upset that that organization, and I've had a ton of veterans on this show in all different branches, that they've had great experiences with the VA and they've had bad experiences. But for you, was it you kind of upset when you look back and go, man, why didn't they do enough to kind of guide me? Hey, Harry, maybe you should try this or do this. Or or is it just like, hey, once you're done with us, go to the jungle because we don't care? I was forwards and backwards with the British Army because they were like, oh, we're going to do this. And you need to go here and you need to drive, you know, 60 miles to go to this meeting and you need to come back. And it's like, I am in a bad place. And then when they discharged me with recurrent depression, I, I thought to myself, this is wrong. This isn't right. Like I haven't seen the correct person. I haven't seen the correct people. So I actually paid money to go and see a specialist. And the specialist told me, no, you have PTSD. You have, you know, terrible nightmares. You have terrible thoughts. You're, you know, triggered by huge noises and bangs and loud voices. Like this is PTSD. And the reason why the military have discharged you of recurrent depression is because they didn't want to pay you to get out of the army with the, what you would have been paid for the PTSD. They wanted to pay you the smallest amount and just get you out of their lives. And even though the military has taught me a lot about my life, even though the military has put me in some situations where it has, it has humbled me, the military definitely didn't do what they, the British army didn't do what they should have done to help the people who are meant to be helping their country or serving for their country. It definitely feel like, felt like I had been kind of like pushed to the ground. And, and then when you walk down the street and you see someone with a sign that says, you know, homeless veteran, you, I know where they have been. I know that they have been struggling and they have been trying to right. ask for help, but they never got the help that they deserve. It's a, it's so fascinating because you, when you, when you first appear on the screen, I had this inkling. It's like, this is just someone that someone I'd be friends with. But when you look at him from the outside, you're like, he's just someone who's lost or 
trying to find his place or someone who's just misunderstood really. And I love the fact that there's a sense of awkwardness to when you first meet you on screen, how you're filming in the jungle uh, yourself before the big production company came in. But it's like, and as I step back and do some research on you, I realize this is a kid that experienced war and violence as opposed to going to college or in education. It's like that when people don't understand that, it's like, well, hold on a second. He didn't have this eight hour school day and hanging out and drinking beers with his buddies. Like he's seeing stuff in combat and not to take away from those people, but the big for the big takeaway for me is like, here's someone like Harry who's just misunderstood that how many people in this world that do go in the jungle and don't come out. That's what really hit home for me. And you know, it's a lot. And I, and I look back and I think, you know, when I went to war, I was 18 years old. I joined the military two days after my 18th birthday. Now in the film, my brother is 13 at the time, but now my brother is 16. You know, he, he's going to be 17 in March. And I just think of him as this kid, this tiny, like, I remember him coming home from the hospital, you know, and, and now he's only a year away from where I was to go to war. There's no way that he is ready. There is no way that he is physically, mentally fit to go and do what I did, you know, 10 years right. ago. And to look back on it, it's like, I understand, you know, people, they have their ways. For me, I couldn't go to school. I couldn't do college because I struggle in that environment. I'm much more of a hands-on person. You know, if I had school or an apprenticeship, I would definitely have done the apprenticeship. But I didn't really have them options because I, you know, I am a little bit different from most people. I am hyper-aware and hypersensitive, and I understand animals more than I understand people. But it doesn't make me any more or less than anybody else, you know? Right. I just need to have the or I need to needed back then to be seen for who I am and, and, and for what I was. It's just the fact that I made my choices. I went to war, I went to the jungle and I've achieved all the things that I have achieved just by pushing myself. But some people don't have the support that I have had. And some people don't also have the mentality like I had. And, um, and I personally in the future want to be helping people like that as well as saving as much jungle as possible. One of the, and I don't want to give too much away to the documentary because I want everyone to see it first. But when it comes to Carl, the first oscillate you're 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 with, and then there's a scene where it's just heartbreaking, obviously with the poachers and what happens. But when that type of stuff happens, especially in that environment, the this you're in the rainforest of Peru where poachers, all this stuff's out there. Does that ever did that ever trigger your kind of combat type PTSD experience when you hear those gunshots and you kind of give it an inkling of it when you hear stuff and how frantic you get when it's like you know what's out there and there's only so much you can do? Like how did that experience like kind of like go back and forth there? I've had to work on my mental health a lot since that day. Um I obviously don't want to give too much away, like you said, but when that happened, I wasn't in the jungle anymore. I was in Afghanistan. Um, I, wow. it took me, it took me a few moments to realize where I was, the sound, the, the smells, the temperature, you know, I, I had to kind of like put myself back in my body. It was an unexplainable, awful feeling that I had. And obviously from what happens there, that was probably one of the worst days of my, of my life. Um, and you know, there's nothing I can do to change that. There's nothing I can do to go back in time. 
Um, but what that did is that lit a fire in me and that made me say, no, you know, I can't give up even though I want it so bad. I can't give up. I got to keep fighting because there's something else that I can do to make this right. I want to make sure, you know, that I can, I can fight for what's mine. And when Keanu came into the mix, it was like, this is it. This is why I've stayed alive. This is why I have fought and fought and fought and struggled and struggled and, and hurt myself and hurt the people around me. This is why I've done this. It's just for this moment here. And it was redemption. How did you come up with the name Keanu? Me and my friend Megan, um, who is also a part of um, my nonprofit, uh, we were watching The Matrix in the jungle because it was like a a hot day, cold, you know, like it was just like we weren't doing anything. I had some films on my hard drive and Khan obviously begins with K and I kind of wanted to continue that. I'm not really sure why. I just thought, you know, I wanted it to begin with K. There's not many names that begin with K which aren't really girly or, you know, you know, not suitable for a male Oslo, which is going to be ferocious. And I was watching The Matrix and I just thought, you know, Keanu is a, a great name, like Keanu Reeves. And uh, that's that's how it became about, you know, like Keanu came because of Keanu Reeves. When you when they when you first say the name of the the oscillate, I I refer back to John Wick, a Keanu Reeves movie where he goes out of retirement because his dog is killed uh, by a bunch of hitmen. And I was just kind of like, I wanted to ask you that because I'm like, I didn't know if this was tongue in cheek, but obviously there is a connection to Keanu Reeves. It, yeah, it was from The Matrix, and only after I got out of the jungle, I actually watched John Wick. Um, you know no internet, no nothing. I couldn't really do anything. I had like 1999 movies on my hard drive that I was just kind of like looping through. Um, and so I, yeah, I watched that and was like, wow, like it really kind of was meant to be. It fit in very well. Right. When you first start watching the documentary, and again, not going to give too much away, it's very personal shooting. Were you holding the camera, interacting with the wildlife and the people and your the crew there? But then it kind of gets into a bigger thing. And I know the backstory, the one production company that was out there was going to, I think, go after anacondas or film some other animal, but there's no like type of content. They came across you guys. In that moment, this when did you realize this thing was becoming something bigger than just you and a camera in the ocelot? So the reason why this film really came about is because when I was in the jungle, I was filming because I was 21 years old and I was walking the jungles with an ocelot. It was, you know, I don't know anybody else who has done that. And so I wanted to record it, not just for me, but for memories for other people. You know, I could show my parents because I had no contact with them at this time. I could show, you know, family members and friends like, look what I've captured. I'm the only person in the world to capture an ocelot killing a caiman. Like this is like absolutely incredible stuff. And I was just like filming because I had this passion. Now, obviously um, moving on from Khan, I wanted to make sure that he was remembered. And for me personally, that was just something that I promised him. And I then um, was kind of just like working in the jungle a little bit. I was doing my thing. What, I, I, I knew I had to be there for, for something, but it hadn't come yet. And uh, Trevor, who um, I bumped into, he was there filming, uh, sorry, photographing for Anacondas for a National Geographic article. And he, in two months, maybe found two Anacondas and they weren't a great size and they weren't anything. But 
one of our mutual friends, Paul Rosalie, said, you will never believe that guy's story as I was walking past in, in the hotel. And so after a few times of bumping into him and just kind of saying like, hi, you know, I, I didn't want to speak to anyone. You know, I came into town so I could get food and I can replenish and I could get back out there because that's where I felt the most comfortable. Um, and I showed him some of the footage on my hard drive and he was like, damn, there's, there's some room for a documentary in here. Even though there's not that much footage, we have enough and we can do some interviews. And then just after we signed the kind of contract for making a, a short film of Khan. That's when Keanu came into the mix. And so everything filmed with Khan was all me. I filmed absolutely everything. And then when Keanu came into the mix, they gave the cameras, they gave the audio. And then from there on, everything with, with Keanu was me because I was the only one that was able to interact with Keanu on a day-to-day -day basis where I could film and I could do all of these things and then the stuff with my family and, and everything like that that obviously goes back to the film crew and you know very you know happy to be able to say that I filmed 75 percent of a documentary it's it's so fascinating and when you kind of the, the the idea that you you go out there to help these animals or to find yourself and then obviously Colin and Keanu come to your life but also the impact, it's almost like a weird circle of life between animals and humans where you help them, they give back to you, but they're also helping another animal in their life cycle because you need the oscillates to help them. It's like, it's weird, crazy structure out there. And it's like the one thing I wish about the, I mean, you could probably keep filming that stuff. I, I love, I eat that stuff off, but it's like, it's so interesting watching not only you and the oscillates interact, but the other animals in the oscillates interact. And it's like, it's such a peculiar it's such an amazing way how you're able to capture that content there. You know, it's a very kind of like personal way of looking at it. When I was filming him hunting and when I was filming him kind of like messing about with insects and, you know, and capturing moments which nobody has really caught before with, you know, venomous spiders and, and different right. snakes. Like it's, it's such a personal thing. And for me, I was recording because you know there was a documentary but i was recording because i cared and i loved this and i wanted to remember this and i think that that's where my filming comes into it is that because i had the passion and it wasn't forced you know like i it, it was so natural like i wanted to film anyway but this was just cool and i knew that i had like hard drives and space and sd where i could just film and film and film i managed to capture some incredible and amazing things which you know I'm super proud of. Well, it's like it, it, none of the shots were perfect. I mean, they were great shots, but I think what this thing, this documentary is so powerful is because it was dirty, like you were wet or it's hot out, and you felt like you were in a rain puddle or a forest. Like at least I did watching this documentary, and I just think there's something to that where it's like very gorilla esque. I mean, this is the first time I watched a documentary that felt like, well, holy shit, I hear po I hear the poachers too, and it's like that tension and for you to capture that content that specific stuff it's just it's amazing man it's it's i think it's one of those things too where outside your conservation you're going to inspire people who whether it's animals or cars or whatever it is this type of art to document your passion in your life in a way that's so like so unique yeah not only just to document it but uh, document the good bits but also document yes. the bad bits like 
for me personally, it was so hard for me to film myself upset or film myself, you know, in a bad place because I, no one wants to be seen as sad or depressed or, or negative. And especially when you're going to be putting it out there for the world, you know, like that for me was really, really hard. And I was very nervous for, for the release of the film because I didn't know what people were going to think. Oh, this guy's a bitch. Like he's, you know, he, right. he's crying about something like this or, you know, you know, why is he doing you never know and like when it's yourself you kind of eat at yourself like thinking like and worrying like what people are gonna think but at the end of the day the amount of response that i've got from this film saying thank you for being so open thank you for being so vulnerable you've made me realize that i need to work on myself you made me realize or you've made me want to go to therapy or you've made me want to you know pursue uh, an avenue in conservation or animal uh you know rehabilitation or any sort of animal management and even though I was vulnerable and it was hard for me to do that I feel like because of that vulnerability so many people have been given that kind of like inspiration and that spark that they need to to kind of face the fact that they have mental health issues or face the fact that they need to you know get up and do something about their life and their and their life choices um and you know that I I just want to I want to do public speaking. I want to be a voice for uh, mental health advocacy. I want to be a voice for conservation. Um, my nonprofit, Emerald Arch, um, we're going to be doing some really cool things with not only just buying and protecting land and everything which is in it, but we want to be taking people who are struggling with PTSD, veterans specifically, to the jungle so that they can do something like I did where in my first 14 days, I just wanted to die. But after that, I, I had this new lease on life. I want to give people that opportunity. 22 veterans a day a, a, alone in the U S commit suicide. And that is not a number that we should be okay with. You know, we shouldn't be okay with anyone committed suicide, but especially veterans who are struggling because of a collapse in their system. If I can help any single person, not just U.S. military, but any military across the world to come to the jungle, to, to live and, and walk in the footsteps that I once did and to become somewhat happier in themselves, I know that that's what I want to do as well as saving rainforest. One of there, – there are two parts of the movie where I got really ups, bad, bad at the situation. It's like the one thing where it's – it's again, I don't want to give away too much, but the self-harm when it comes to the cutting. And it's I had a friend back in high school, they like you, they've uh recovered from that. Uh, but they would cut themselves and I always got mad at them because I never understood it. Like I it was easy for me to say, What are you doing? You're so dumb. Like, dude, you're my friend, like, what are you doing? It's like, but when you peel back the layers of this documentary, you start seeing why people act do something like you might have done in this documentary. And it's the, the human aspect of that where it's the first time I'm kind of like, okay, now I get it. It's so easy for me saying I'm never depressed. Like what's depression? And I said that before the pandemic because I'm never a very, I'm very positive and, oh, it's glasses half full. It's what do you mean you're depressed? Like you have a great life until you actually live someone else's life. You don't know that. Right. And that's okay to not really understand, you know, how are, you, how are you meant to know and how are you meant to feel what someone else is feeling or going through? And I think that the good thing about this this film, especially that scene, um, and there's also a scene where I have to talk to my brother about my scars. Um, you know, it's a hard thing to talk about. It's a hard thing to to go through. But at the same time, 
you probably, you know, most of the people that are going to be listening to this know somebody or have themselves been through a part in their life where they felt depressed and they have felt suicidal or they have self-harm like that you know one in four people struggle with depression and after the pandemic it's probably more like two in four people like you don't have to understand why that person does that you just have to take a step back and be like okay he must be going or they must be going through something i want to kind of be there for that person Um, and I can try and understand if, you know, that is a possibility. Not a lot of people open up about it, but I hope that me showing that side of me will definitely encourage other people to open up to their family and to their friends about their issues that they're dealing with. (laughs) No, I thought it was so powerful. And then the other part, you're going through a relationship during the course of this documentary, and there's one part where, this your partner at the time she storms off and at that moment i'm kind of like hold on a second like you obviously that she knows more about you and than i do as a viewer but when i see it i'm like hold on a second like we just peel back these layers he's depressed uh ptsd all this other stuff he misses his family want to go like all this other stuff he just lost con why are you acting this way but then again you step back and it's like here's a kid you that you have this the horrors of war you have the loss of the first uh oscillate you have the long distance relationship with your family then you have a relationship you're dealing with and it's like man there's the whole way of the world is on your shoulders yeah and in that minute in that time in this documentary when that happens i'm just like man i would i like i literally would have killed for you like i just felt so like angry that for this fleeting moment let him vent and it, again i don't know enough about the situation because i know it's just a part of your life at that time. But like, I, I felt like you were left to deal with that yourself. If that makes sense. It was, it was unfair. And, you know, without going into too much detail, it was extremely toxic. You know, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be a part of that. But, you know, unfortunately when things come down to it, I was stuck in that situation. It sounds uh, kind of funny in a way because I was like the animal caged, you know, I, I was, unable to escape that situation Uh, and i was trying to uncage the animal and make him as wild as possible i knew that i had to be there for keanu i I knew that i had to be there for that animal and and that animal's life and i pushed through and i pushed through the toxicity and i pushed through the the violence and the anger and and i pushed through my own mental health because i knew that you know forget all that in the past forget it like i needed to do this for this one animal and I and I did because that's the type of person I am. I I had to do something and I completed it. And when it comes to the basis, so basically your job is out there is to get these oscillates ready to go back into the wild to live on themselves because they have no parents. And so towards the end, when Keanu's ready to go, you have this outburst, which is totally understandable. But I guess my question to you is: Was there a sense of fear or like were you scared that? your one thing out here that's keeping you alive and focused is ready to graduate to the next step of life and you'll be left alone or am I misreading that situation wrong? No, you're reading that completely a hundred percent. I needed him to go off by himself, but at the same time I was petrified. And, you know, I, after he leaves, I had no purpose, you know, like what was going to make me get out of bed every day? What was going to, you know, right. make me do everything I needed to do? And 
let me tell you, when I came back from the jungle after Keanu, I was in a bad place. I I was struggling because not only was I letting go of the thing I love the most in this world, I was also dealing with being in this beautiful place, going from this jungle to this concrete jungle. I yeah. went back to the UK to see my family. And I remember being in a restaurant with my my family, with, with my mum, my dad, brother and sister, my uncle, my auntie, my cousin, my grandma, my granddad. It's, you know, it's like a Christmas meal. And someone drops a plate. And the cutlery just, you know, it just makes this clinking noise on the ground. And I couldn't be there. I had this intense panic attack. I was just like, I don't want to be in this situation whatsoever. I hate the sound of people. I hate the sound of like yeah. cutlery and, and everything going on. It was just like, I went from zero to a hundred and I was just like swarmed by it all. And so the transition was very, very hard um it was it was it was difficult it was um stressful it caused a lot of issues for my mental health um but i found somebody else you know my my fiance now lexi and she helped me navigate through them them situations she helped me get back up on my feet again realize that i am worth something and, you know, since her, you know, we've done some incredible things, traveled the world and uh, started our nonprofit as well, which is going to be doing some some great things for the Ecuadorian Amazon. And so, you know, like their moments, they were hard. They were tough, but they put me in a nut. They put me in a place, you know, once again, to push me to do the best I can in my future. With the documentary crews out there, they're not filming. Like, what is your like basic day to day outside of obviously either with Connor Keanu? Like, try to put me in the frame of mind. Like, what are your chores? Because I think I know. Obviously, I see a lot of stuff you do with a lot of the, the the care for the animals. But for like you personally to uphold like a site like that, uh, mm -hmm. like how do you preserve like the water, electricity? Like, tell me about your day. Like a basic day like that. So in the mornings, I would wake up. I would go down to the river to check the boat. The river rises and falls yeah. very, very quickly. So you need to make sure that the boat is safe. Otherwise, you know, you're not safe. Uh, coming back, I would usually kind of make some food, um, prepare my camera gear. I had solar energy because uh, a generator just is not good for the environment, for one. And two, it's too noisy to be doing a reintroduction. So I would try if there was any sun. Some days, you know, in the rainforest, it's just cloudy and rainy. So there would be no electricity. Um, I would back up my hard drives. I would clean up my camera equipment. I would um, charge my batteries. I would get my gear together. I would go out. I would walk for hours and hours, you know, finding all sorts of incredible animals um, and sharing moments with these ocelots like no other. And um, then I would go back. I would wash up a little bit, change out my SD cards, change batteries again, eat some dinner, go out for a night time, and then I wouldn't come back till one, two, three o'clock in the morning. Um, and I don't know how many kilometers I was walking a day, but maybe close to 12, 14. Right, you know, with, with, a, with a cat, you just walk slowly, you sit down, you know, they're nocturnal by, you know, so during the day would be a very slow pace of life. We would go sleep under trees and we would like hang out and watch the monkeys and, and he would go chase after something and then come back and, then at nighttime was when it was full on, you know, he would be in stealth mode. His eyes would be wide 
and we would just go out hunting and we would hunt together you know if i saw a rodent go into a log i'd make sure he was on one end of it and i would like go to the other end and we would like if i had to catch it i would if he had to catch it he would you know we'd we work together as a team um it was a an incredible opportunity for me and i will never forget that you mentioned the scene with the caiman uh when you're learning how to hunt and obviously if it's too big it's gonna bite keanu and stuff but it's for that moment i'm just kind of like how vicious the circle of life is in a jungle like that where it's just like if i do that animal I'd be like, I, I, I don't even want to go out here because i don't know what's gonna bite me and stuff and it's like to get something in a creature like keanu ray to go back and live into that habitat I understand, I understand now where it's like the fear of you. It's like you can't be out there to be the big brother or the mom or the dad for this animal where like if the spider bite or a caiman bites it or something else or it's just like it's the amount of trust you have with that animal, the animal trusts you to eventually let go. It, it's just so surreal to me. The thing is with these animals is that they are, you know, naturally wild, instinctually wild. And so you have to let them do the things which are going to cause them to learn. If you take, if you take the stance of what has Harry done in his life, I've done some pretty messed up things, you know, yeah. uh, and I've been in some messed up situations, but it made me who I am today. And you can't wrap these cats in cotton wool. You know, it's, it's not possible. Um, there's danger everywhere. It's a man. It's a, it's a dangerous place. Um, not just with wild animals and insects and disease and parasites, but you also have humans. And a lot of the times I get asked the question, oh, what was the scariest moment in, in this whole kind of, you know, few years that you lived in the jungle? And, and you know, a lot of the time when I was in the jungle, humans. I was alone. And the times I felt the most scared was when I was surrounded by people who I did not know. It and it, it, it's, it's true. It, you can go all over the world and the scariest thing in this world yeah. is humans. And how how perceptive were other people, whether it's illegal loggers or poachers or even good people that are out there doing maybe similar stuff to you, how aware were they of you out in that area, that presence, knowing what you were doing? Um, there was a local community which was downriver from, from where I was staying. And um, I they knew. Uh, they knew that I was there. They knew me as the crazy white guy. And, um, you know, I would come down every now and again to go and have like a fresh Coca-Cola or, you know, just to have a chat with somebody. And when I was there, they would be like, so how is it? Can you show me photos? Can you show me videos? And I would show them these, you know, incredible things. And they're like, how did you do that? Like, wow, that is incredible. Like, thank you for showing me and my kids and good luck. And if you need anything, we're here. Um, and, they knew that I was trying to do something good for the, the place where they live, you know, and, and, and they knew that I was there. They knew the issue with calm beforehand. They knew everything. And so um, it was, people knew that I was there, but you can never trust anyone really, you know, like right. people, you know, with a, with a community like that, it's not just the people that live in there. People come in and out of there and um, people have to make a living. People have to do things to put food on their, plates for their families and sometimes that can be illegal yeah it, it was kind of it was a cool but when you talk about the loggers and that that one scene where it's cutting down these trees and stuff it's like they have to make ends meet so that's not that poachers at the low level necessarily aren't evil people they're doing it because they need the money to live and sustain and do the stuff it's the people that, that hire them 
that are the issue. It was kind of a cool way how you were able to kind of, for the people that aren't aware of what poaching is, it's so easy to condemn these villagers right. chopped down this tree or God forbid shooting an elephant or something. They don't, they don't know. It's like what they're doing is that big of a deal. It's like, it was kind of a cool way of you kind of showing that. If the country and the politics of that country helped their people, then we wouldn't be in the Correct. predicament that we are around the world. Now, I get upset and angry when people take animals, but I know that what that person is doing is, is being paid pennies to cut down a tree, which is then going to go to China or the US and be sold for thousands of thousands of dollars yep. for hardwood for either a bed or a hardwood floor. They're being paid, you know, hardly anything. So if they cut down a tree and there's a, a baby toucan or a baby macaw or a baby ocelot, what do you think they're going to do with that? If they can make money from this animal, they're going to try and make money from this animal because how else are they going to feel, feed their family? There's no sex, sex education. So these, these kids are 17, 18 years old and they have children. How And they've never gone to school. How else are they going to make money? Right. How you know? And abortion is illegal in the majority of these places. Now, I know this is a topic in the US as well, which is causing a lot of like controversy. Right. But in these places where there's no sex education, abortion is illegal, you have zero money, and all you have is the people above you, the, the people in power who don't give a shit about you. It's very, very simple what they're going to do. And they're going to do anything to put food on their plates for their families. Right. It's, it's almost like they harbor and create these, these people to do these actions. It's, it's unfortunate. It's a terrible, terrible thing. The, if the, if it ever came to you again, I have not, and I, I do want to, before we get off here, I want, I do want to talk about like what you're currently doing, some of the stuff you're working on, but when the process ever, if the situation ever came up again, where, Hey, Harry, it doesn't necessarily have to be Peru, but, uh, we have an oscillate or another similar type animal. Could you do what you did before? Or did part of that life of you leave when Keanu took off the last time? It's a good question. And, you know, I never want to see an animal in Correct. a situation where it's going to be life or death. Um, right. And so if I was in a place in my life where I had two years to spare where I could do this again, then I would. Would there be things that I'd do differently? Yes, there would, you know, like I, I've learned from what I have done in my past and I'm very proud of what I've done, but I'm also con continuously learning. Um, and so there would be, you know, an opportunity for me to do that. Um, you know, I, would I love to do it again? You know, yes, but it was extremely hard for me. And now that I have a, a beautiful relationship and I have this kind of like vision and this, this motivation, <laughs> for future projects that I'm, you know, currently working on now, um, the, the, you know, who, who knows? And I'm going to continue filming and I'm going to continue taking photographs um, and I'm going to continue doing all the things I love because just like this film, this film started because of a passion. Maybe I might do another film in the future because of a passion. And you kind of hinted at it, but it seems like with your new projects now, the idea of a, a proper team too around you, where it's like you don't have to put all the burden on yourself, but you have a team around you that can kind of help out and make sure stuff gets handled and kind of talk about that, the importance of as you kind of created this uh, new nonprofit, the importance of teamwork as you kind of move into what you're doing now. Right. So Emerald Arch was started because – you know, me, my fiance, and my and my friend, 
we have this passion, we have this drive to do something good for nature. And we didn't want to put all of our eggs in one basket. We didn't want to just buy land in one jungle. We have a US-based nonprofit where we can distribute funds where we see fit. If there's a tsunami again and it hits Sri Lanka, if we have the money to go and help the animals and the people there, that's what we're going to do. But for now, what we're looking at is we're looking at buying land in Ecuador. The reason why we've looked at Ecuador is, as you see at the end of the film, I actually go to Ecuador to help with reptile and amphibian conservation um, through a group called Tropical Herping. And while I was there, I just fell in love with the place. It's just this incredible, beautiful, completely diverse place that is being troubled by oil companies. Oil companies now are trying to get the last drops of oil from the Amazon and they're destroying and completely like completely just throwing everybody's health, everybody's, yeah. you know, they just thrown it to the ground. You know, these local people are just being surrounded by oil and crude oil and it's, and it's causing cancer and it's causing all these issues and killing off animals. It's like what we want to do as Emerald Archers, we want to go out there we want to raise the funds so that we can buy this plot of land that we have in mind. We want to protect the land. We want to help with the local people. We want to build a retreat on there so that people who are struggling with PTSD can come out and they can do their, you know, their part. And if there are other animals that need to be helped, then we'll have a, a, a position in place for people to come out and help. But we will have protocol and we'll have everything that we need in place so that then this can be and go ahead as it should do. You had mentioned kind of before the idea of if these personal, if these actual governments and agencies actually did their job, when you reach out to the people like Ecuador, these other groups, these government entities, how perceptive are you to be like, Oh, Holy shit. Like this guy really wants to make a difference. And let's, I wish we had more Harry's or are they kind of like, because their hands in the oil or their hands in the, like how hard is it for you to kind of get through there? And if people that don't listen to this podcast or see the documentary or other work you do, how do they find out about a group like yours that, Hey, I'm a farmer in Ecuador. I'm in my will. I want to give a hundred acres to this group. Like how do people reach out and find you guys? Yeah. So reaching out to find us will be pretty easy. Um, you know, you can find us on www.emeraldarch.org. But going back to speaking to the higher up people and the, and the political people, it's a hard thing. You know, they have their hands in many pockets. They will be doing, you know, what they can to benefit specific parts of their country. But one of my great friends in Ecuador is actually friends with the Minister of Environment. And so we have a good connection and a good friendship with people in power who want to do good for their country. It's just working. It's, it's taking them baby steps. It's making friendships. It's, it's, you can't rush into it. You can't just go and, and, and uh, you know, bribe your way in or, or go and do what you want to do. You have to go the long way around and you have to take your time and you have to be careful of what you say and careful of, of what you do. But we have a good kind of footholding with these people we want to do the best that we can and I, and it improves and helps their their government and their land and and at the end of the day you know like if they want to reach out and they want to get in touch with us we'll be more than happy right. to talk to them about these these decisions um 
you know, we're not the only people who are trying to do stuff in Ecuador. There's many, many other organizations which, you know, have the same kind of vision of protecting rainforests and, you know, choking rainforest, which is, you know, being deforested oh. at such a rate. And, you know, that you have the oil companies which are destroying parts of the Amazon and you also have illegal logging and, you know, everything that's going on. But there's always hope. And and if you look at this film as well, you you see that there is hope. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. And there are other people like me who want to do good. And, you know, I just hope that this film can touch as many people as possible and it can change as many minds as possible. You know, whether it be struggling with depression and, and uh, working on it yourself or whether it be actually helping out conservational groups like Emerald Arch or, you know, making your own and starting your own and doing what you feel is is best. And if you find a loophole, and you can do something good don't just think about it like do some actions well it's it's the idea of how you go in there for one thing and what the what the forest gets back to you it's just like it's such a unique it's like such a cool relationship that i think more people need to be if we are all grounded in with nature more than we are today i think we'd all be better off it was, it's really cool to see that happen in real time when it comes to the the wildcat documentary I agree. And I think that if you take mental health and you take conservation and you combine the two, it's going to reach a wider audience. And if people, you know, and people who do struggle with mental health, after you've gone on a walk or after you've uh, spent some time away on holiday, you naturally feel, you know, healthier. You feel better in yourself. If we can protect the land which is being destroyed and we can bring people or we can, you know, help people with depression you're killing two birds with one stone there. No, it's great. It's like, I guess a que I had another question. When it comes to animals, it's say there, say a, a baby oscillate watches their parent get killed by a poacher or here's a gunshot. Has there been studies done PTSD for said animals that are affected by the violence of what they see? Or is that really, has that really been dug into yet? Because I am, I'm, I'm sure and I know animals suffer from PTSD. I know combat dogs, EOD dogs that come back that are, act differently because of the stuff they see, or God forbid their handler passed away. Like what's, it's, it's such an interesting topic. Many mammals are very, very aware of what's going on. If you see an elephant, elephants are extremely intelligent. And if you see, you know, an elephant who has been around an elephant, which has been killed by poachers, you know that it's stressed, you know, that it will bang its head, you know, that it will knock down as many trees as it can. And that goes for almost every other mammal. You know, they're very, very intelligent and a lot of people don't give them the credit they need. When I was actually working with Keanu, uh, I orphaned, um, I helped an orphaned uh, howler monkey. He, his mum was shot with him on his back and the mum fell to the ground and he had a shot wound through his shoulder. And I managed to patch him up and managed, but he struggled. He was a very, very depressed animal. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not fair. It's not fair what we put these animals through for yeah. our greed and, and, and that's it, honestly, it's greed. And I'm, I, I'm very outspoken when it comes to zoos. And as a kid, I would go to the zoo and aquariums because that's the only time I could physically with my own eyes outside of an encyclopedia, see what these penguins or lions and rhinos do. But as I got older, I'm kind of like the idea that you want to go there. If people spent half the money they spent going to aquariums and buying balloons of SeaWorld shit, 
that money could go to an organization like yours or other organizations that are pro-animal and you you have such a bigger impact than buying a putting a penny in a machine and spending another 50 cents to get some lion engraved on it. It's just such a weird, especially now as I'm just so outspoken about it. It's like if I'm gonna go see an animal, I'm gonna do what you did, where I'm gonna, hey, I'm out there in the wild, I'm by myself. If you want to see a snake or a lion, come get me. But oh, hiding behind glass and cages, it's so infuriating. It is. And I think that we're so detached from nature these days that it's actually, it feels safer and it feels more convenient right. for us to look at these animals via a, a thicker glass. And and fear is a, is a huge thing. I think a lot of people are very fearful, you know, stories going back to, you know, like the Bible, for example, it talks about how snakes are bad and dangerous and, you know, all these things and serpents. And, and at the end of the day, I hate snakes. that, that well there we go you know but why do you hate snakes and are and are they you know dangerous to you or you know but the thing is it's just because we it's ingrained in us to not like these things from such a young age but if if we didn't have snakes you know we'd have uh an overpopulation in rodents then we'd have too many diseases and then you know it's all the circle of life i'm afraid of something that's clearly afraid of me It, it is reacting in a way how I, I, where I step back and I think lunges forward, that's both our ways of dealing with our own fear. And it's like, and I, people obviously know me, know I, I can touch like the big stakes if they're there. If they're in the grass or the, I don't know they're there, and it, I, I hate it. But as I've gotten older again, I've kind of realized fear is just, I, it, fear, if you could meet in the middle somewhere, the fear will go away. And obviously Absolutely. I can't talk to a snake per se, uh, but, if I could somehow meet in the middle there and be like, hey, man, this is why I do this, why I do this. Okay, we got it. I think I'd be over my fear of snakes. Yeah, it's a respect thing, you know. If, you, if you're walking and you see a snake, if you don't approach it and if you just walk around it, that snake's going to go the opposite way from you, you know. It's that respect that us as humans have kind of lost to every single animal. And to be honest, we're starting to lose respect for each other as well. Well, that's – we're uh, all animals. It's like we don't even yeah. – well, you mentioned it. We don't – We'll pay to see animals in the zoo. We'll walk by a homeless veteran or we'll even let a veteran live on the streets, which a whole other discussion. But it's again, man, it's I'm just I just so happy I fell upon this documentary Wildcat and the fact you're able to put yourself out there like that. Like I'll do as much as I can on my end to help push this. And the the way you're saving lives by being who you are, uh, it's a testament to you, man. And bravo. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And so obviously uh, people want to reach out to you. They can reach out to your organization. I know you're on Instagram yourself, uh, but uh, just awesome again, man. And I, I just can't thank you enough for being you. Thank you. Yeah. And if anyone does want to reach out, you can reach out via my Instagram, which is Harry underscore underscore Turner or Emerald period arch, or you can go to our website, www.emeraldarch.org. Awesome. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Oh, hello. I'm just enjoying this nice fucking candle. Anyways, I'm John, the host of Spirit Talk, and I want to talk to you about nice fucking candles. We are lucky to have nice fucking candles as a sponsor of the podcast. And if you use code SPIRITALK15, you get 15% off your first order, or use the affiliate link below to always get your candle needs through nice fucking candles. Nice fucking candles are 100% soy wax. They have a 65-hour burn time. Maybe more if you uh, nurse the flame a little bit. Maybe, I don't know, I'm not an expert on flames uh, or candles, 
but I will say these things burn a long fucking time. You ask me about the wick, it's a double wick for even burning, which is amazing. And uh, they come in three incredible flavors. Uh, I'm not sure if you're going to be eating these candles, but if you do like them, the scents are eucalyptus and ginseng, tobacco and fireside, and seaside and driftwood. Once again, uh, nice fucking candles. They are the candle company for Spirit Talk. And if you love candles and need a good scent to clear out your office, your room, your podcast room, your weight room, uh, your whatever you're doing in a room that smells like crap, use this candle. It's amazing. Thank you. Check them out. Love. Nice fucking candles. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.